So if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is this morning we are preaching uh, part two of a two-part mini-series on Mark 13 titled Birth Pains, Birth Pains. And the reason that these sermons are titled Birth Pains is not because I'm trying to bring up any traumatic experiences for any of you who have experienced birth pains, uh, but no, we're titling these sermons Birth Pains because Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 8, that these things that he's telling his disciples about what's going to happen in their future, uh, he says that they are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus says that their future isn't going to be easy and carefree. He doesn't promise them health and wealth if they just have enough faith. No, he doesn't tell them that they're going to be saved from trials, but instead that they're going to be saved through trials. But just like birth pains, which yes, are painful, they are a sign of new life that is coming into the world. And last week I explained that Mark 13 is uh, it's probably the most difficult chapter in the book to interpret and to understand. And there are many smart, intelligent people who love Jesus who, who differ in opinion as to what exactly Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13. And so one camp uh, thinks that, that Mark 13, everything Jesus is talking about, already took place. And it took place in the first century. And it, and it culminated with the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70. Then another camp thinks that everything Jesus is talking about here uh, is all about the end times, things that haven't happened yet, but they're going to happen in the future just before Jesus returns. And then another camp, which is the one I would fall into, uh, says that, no, he's primarily talking about the first century and the events leading up to the destruction of the temple, but then he's also going to switch gears and point to his second coming. And there are two verses in chapter 13 that I told you last week to circle. And so if you didn't get a chance to do that last week, do it this week if you feel comfortable writing in your Bibles. Uh, The first verse is verse 4. Verse 4 really sets the scene for us a bit. Jesus has just told his disciples uh, that the temple is going to be destroyed, which would be earth-shattering news for them to hear. And they ask him these questions. They ask, when will it be destroyed? And what is the sign that this is about to happen? And so those are the questions that Jesus is primarily answering here. And we need to keep that in mind as we continue to go through this complex and sometimes confusing chapter. And then I told you to circle verse 30, which verse 30, it says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And we will look at that verse a little bit closer today. But what I proposed to you last week was that I believe everything before verse 30 did primarily take place in the first century, and that then everything after verse 30 is now then referring to his second coming. And I will continue to make that argument to you today. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would uh, change my mind or switch uh, thoughts on that through the course of a week, but I've stayed the course, and I'm still going to make that argument to you today. But listen, let's not get caught too much into the weeds of information overload in this chapter. Because I do not believe that Jesus is primarily trying to inform us. Don't don't get me wrong, there is some information here. He is informing us to some degree. But his primary, primary purpose is not to inform us, but instead to admonish us, to warn us 
to exhort or strongly encourage us to do something. And if you want to know what he's primarily telling us to do, look at the last two words of the chapter. What, what are the last two words of the chapter? Just shout it out when you see it. Stay awake. Now, that's not only my goal for each of you this morning during the sermon, right? Uh, but this is, this is what Jesus is telling us to do for our entire lives. He's telling us to stay awake. Now, now, not literally, please physically get some sleep at some point today or tonight, but, but spiritually, we are to stay awake. We are to stay alert. We are to be watchful for his return. And so I want some group participation this morning. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, let's stay awake. Amen. All right. All right. Listen, when, when Britt was in labor with Jackson for 19 hours, what do you think I was doing? Do you think I was napping? Some of you really have a very low view of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I was not sleeping. Come on. That would have been highly inappropriate and unloving if, if I was sleeping during labor. Now, I did sleep uh, after he was born because I was exhausted. It was very exhausting for me. So I had to catch up on that sleep, and Britt will one day catch up on her sleep sometime in the future. But no, like, like maybe back in the day that would have been okay when fathers were just expected to smoke a cigar in the waiting room and they would acknowledge their child's existence once they were out of diapers and could get a job. But, but nowadays, like fathers and future fathers, let me give you some advice. Like that is not okay anymore, right? Fathers, you are to be, you are to be actively involved in, in coaching and in diffusing essential oils and to be a part of the process. The, the time of birth pains and laboring is is not the time to sleep. And this morning, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, and he's going to tell us, he's going to say, stay awake. Stay awake. Now's not the time to sleep. And this is, this is a complex text, but let me make it real simple. Uh, this sermon is going to be three points, okay? Number one, Jesus is king. Number two, he's coming back. Number three, are you prepared to meet him? Are you prepared to meet him? So before we jump in, let me say another prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are king. Help us be watchful and alert and ready for your return. Help us be prepared to meet you. And so, Lord, we ask as we we go through your word. Lord, teach us, instruct us. But Lord, don't just inform us. We ask that you would change us, that you would transform us, give us a love for you, that you would stir up in us a hope and an anticipation of your return. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you got your Bibles, Mark 13, we're picking it up in verse 24. If you missed last week, I'm sorry. Go back and listen to the recorded version. We're just we're too far in to, to recap too much. So look at, look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, at first read, this does seem like Jesus is talking about his second coming. And, and, and some people do believe that this is Jesus pointing to his second coming. So that, that could be what he's talking about here. But remember, what I'm proposing to you is that verses 24 through 27, everything leading up to verse 30, I'm proposing that they probably are not referring to his second coming, but actually events that took place in the first century. Please don't throw anything yet at this point, okay? Give me a chance. You might be thinking, okay, Grant, was the sun darkened in the first century? Was the moon, like, did it not give its light? Did the stars fall from the sky? Did Jesus, the Son of Man, come in the clouds? Did he send out angels to gather his elect? Like, what do you mean this already happened? This didn't happen. You're crazy. So stick with me. And remember, it's okay if you disagree with me on this point. But, but you see, we read verses 24 and 27, and we think second coming because we are not familiar with this thing called apocalyptic literature. All right? Apocalyptic literature. You see, when we read and interpret a text from the Bible, we have to understand what type of genre we are reading. For example, we can't read a historical account in the same way that we read a prophetic account. We don't read the book of Revelation the same way we read 1 Kings. We don't read poetry in the Psalms the same way we read Colossians, a letter to a church. You have to first understand what genre you are reading. For example, you wouldn't read a biography about C.S. Lewis in the same way that you would read the Chronicles of Narnia. Right? We understand that we approach those two things a little differently. We understand that one's to be read literally and the other is to be read figuratively. And so you see the first century reader and Jesus' disciples who would be first hearing this teaching, they would have been familiar with a genre called apocalyptic literature. It was a specific genre of literature, a way of talking about historical events with uh, metaphorical and symbolic language. D.A. Carson, who's a theologian and a professor at Trinity, he actually, before his students take a course on Revelation, he, he requires them to read about 400 pages of non-biblical apocalyptic literature so that when they come to a book like Revelation and they come to the apocalyptic genre, they already are familiar with some of the symbolism and the imagery that the original readers of the Bible would have had and would have been familiar with. And so Jesus' disciples, hearing these words of Jesus, would have been triggered. They would have said, hey, this is sounding like apocalyptic literature. This is sounding like apocalyptic genre. They would have been thinking about even some of the Old Testament prophets who had used similar imagery and symbolism in their prophecy. And so when Jesus starts using images like the sun being darkened and the stars falling from the sky, they would have been reminded of, of a few passages from the Old Testament. For example, Ezekiel 32, 7. They would have been reminded of something like this, which says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. Or they would have been reminded of a passage like Joel 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
They would have been reminded of Amos 8, verse 9, which says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. They would have been reminded of Isaiah 13, 10. Whoa, yeah, that's... Okay, well, just listen to these words, all right? Uh, (laughs) uh, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. You, You see, we hear sun being darkened and stars falling from the sky and we think end of the world. But, but that's not what the Old Testament prophets were even talking about. In most of those passages that I just read, those were prophecies about the fall of Egypt and the fall of Babylon and the fall of Israel and the fall of uh, Judah. Those verses weren't primarily talking about the end of the world. What they were primarily talking about was a change of power, a change of power. And R.T. France, who's a theologian and commentator on this text, he writes this. We'll have the quote up there. He writes, The cosmic language is drawn directly from the Old Testament prophetic passages where it functions not to predict the physical dissolution of the universe, but as symbolic representations of catastrophic political change within history. Okay, someone who is familiar with apocalyptic language wouldn't hear Jesus say the sun being darkened and the stars falling from the sky, and they wouldn't first think end of the world. They would, however, think change in power. Something cataclysmic is going to happen. There's going to be an upheaval in, in the power structures and leadership. There's going to be a change in power. But what about verse 26? And this is, this is the most difficult part of, of the sermon here, tw- verses 24 through 27, so stick with me, okay? What about verse 26? The Son of Man coming on the clouds. How did that take place in the first century? Again, we're, we're still in this apocalyptic genre, and, and here Jesus is referencing prophecy from Daniel 7. And Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, they say this. This is what Jesus is referencing here. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so it's interesting when we read Daniel 7, it's not so much that the Son of Man is coming down with the clouds, but he's actually going up to heaven on the clouds. The the, the Son of Man, uh, which is the name Jesus used most frequently of himself, the Son of Man ascended on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And so that imagery of the Son of Man riding on the clouds is more so talking about the Son of Man ascending to the throne. And so the question is, well, does Jesus only become king at his second coming, or is he king right now? What did Jesus tell his disciples after his resurrection? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
That's why we can go, therefore, and make disciples, because Jesus is king. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So, so again, remember, Jesus is right now preparing his disciples for the destruction of the temple. He, he's saying that with his death and resurrection and with the destruction of the temple, it's not going to be the end of the world, but it is going to be the end of the world as they know it. The, the, the sun will be dark and the stars will fall from, uh, from the sky and the Son of Man will ascend to the throne. There is now a change of power and leadership. The, the temple and the religious leaders of the temple are out and Jesus and his word are now ultimate authority. Jesus is now our ultimate prophet. He's our great high priest and he's king of kings. And all this apocalyptic talk is trying to, trying to get at, there is this change of power happening here. The high priest is no longer the high priest. Jesus is now your high priest. And we're going to see Jesus use this same language, actually, when he speaks to the high priest, uh, Caiaphas. So we're going to see later in Mark 14, and I'll just read it for you. Mark 14, verses 61 and 62, Caiaphas is questioning Jesus, and it says, But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, is Jesus saying that Caiaphas is still going to be around for the second coming and see him coming on the clouds? I, I don't think so. I think here again he's using apocalyptic talk to reference that Caiaphas will be around to see a change of power happen. Something cataclysmic is going to happen with Jesus' death and resurrection and with the destruction of the temple. God is going to change who he's going to have lead his people. There will no longer be a human high priest, but Jesus will be the people's high priest. And Jesus will have all authority and be seated on the throne. And so could, 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 this, uh, could verses 24 through 27, could the sun being darkened and the Son of Man coming on the clouds... Could it be referring to his second coming? It could. It could. But if scriptures from the Old Testament and even later in Mark and other apocalyptic literature are taken into account, it seems that Jesus is primarily telling his disciples that a change of power is going to happen in their lifetime. That the temple authority is out and now Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus is king now. But what about verse 27? And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Did that happen in the first century? Right? That sounds like end times type stuff, right? Did that happen in the first century? Isn't this referring to the end of the world when Jesus comes back? It, it could be. It could be. But I think primarily, again, we're talking about what happened in the first century, and it's something that's still continuing to happen today. You see, in the original Greek language, the word here for angels literally means messengers. Messengers. And so it could be that Jesus is referring here to his great commission in sending out both angelic and human messengers to proclaim the gospel and gather his people. 
which is certainly what was happening in the time of the disciples as they spread the gospel to the nations and all throughout that, that the known world in the first century. But that same thing is still continuing to happen today. As we share the gospel, as we plant churches, as we make disciples, we are messengers from God gathering his people from all over the world to be gathered at the throne of Christ. Okay, let's step out of the weeds for a second. I know that can all be kind of confusing, make your brain hurt. This has been my life for the last two weeks as I've been wrestling with all these things, all right? Why does this matter? Why do I want you to understand apocalyptic literature? And why would I want you to understand that Jesus is primarily talking about a change in power? This is why it's important. Because you need to understand that Jesus is not only going to be a king of an everlasting kingdom in the future, but Jesus is king right now. We need to know that. We need to trust that. We need to remember that. And that's why this is important. What a, what a fearful thought it would be if Jesus wasn't on the throne right now. What, what an anxiety-producing thought it would be if Jesus didn't have power over evil right now. Like, what a horrific thought it would be to believe that evil has free reign and wasn't in some way being restrained and bound by Jesus right now. But what a comforting thought it is to know that Jesus is the Son of Man who was crucified, died, and buried for our sin. But three days later, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is on the throne and has been given all authority. That's the king that now says, go messengers and gather my people. It will be painful. There will be trials. You will be hated for his name, but Jesus is on the throne. The reason that we can boldly go to the most dangerous places on earth and be heralds of the gospel is not because one day we think Jesus is going to be king. No, we can go right now because we believe he's ruling and reigning right now. We've been commissioned by the king. Jesus is king right now. Amen, church? And this is why even in our church leadership structure, we, we describe it this way. We say we are a Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally responsible church, right? I, I'm not your high priest. Dad's not your king. The temple and the temple leadership have been done away with. Jesus is king, and we are ruled by him. And now if we look back at Mark 13... We come to a key verse, a verse that has been used to try to discredit Jesus. Look back at Mark 13, verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, skeptics who have not understand apocalyptic literature and have read verse 30 literally have said, hey, Jesus didn't come back in that generation. He didn't come on the clouds. 
Therefore, he's wrong. Therefore, he's not God. Therefore, he can't be trusted. Right? Many, many critics and skeptics have tried to go to this passage to discredit Jesus. But if you interpret Mark 13 the way I have encouraged you to, you can come to verse 30 and literally say, like, no, these these things Jesus told his disciples, they could have a double fulfillment, having another fulfillment in the future, but they all did primarily take place in the first century. They did take place during that generation. However, if you're in the, the camp where you believe that all this is talking about future events, things that haven't happened yet, then you do have to come to verse 30 and interpret it uh, more figuratively, or you have to get a little creative with the word generation, okay? And so uh, the word generation, it can also be translated race. And so uh, he could have meant that the Jewish race would not pass away until all these things were accomplished. And that's the most common interpretation amongst people who read all this as end times. They say uh, Jesus was talking about the Jewish race. And there, there are a lot of smart, uh, smarter people than me, well-educated people who love Jesus that understand it to mean that way, okay? However, I'm just not as convinced, and I'm not alone on that, uh, because the original Greek word for generation— it's used 27 times in the Gospels, and it never once means race. Uh, every time that it's used in the Gospels, it's referring to Jesus' contemporaries. Its use everywhere else is talking about that specific generation. And so people who would disagree with me and say that this is all talking about the end times, they do have to interpret verse 30 a little bit more figuratively or, or uh, interpret that word generation differently, Okay. Whereas if I'm going to have to interpret something figuratively and something literally, I would rather interpret the stuff that smells and looks and tastes like apocalyptic language. I would like to interpret that figuratively and interpret the rest of Scripture literally. So maybe you're still thinking, okay, Grant, so what? Why does it matter if all this took place in the first century, in that generation, as, a as opposed to a future end times situation? Who cares? Why does that even really matter? Well, here here's why I think it matters. Because, listen, I do believe Jesus is coming back. Even though I don't think necessarily verses 24 and 27 are talking about that, I believe there's plenty of other scriptures, and even later what we're going to read in Mark 13, that talk about Jesus is coming back. I believe Jesus is coming back. But here's why it matters. If all of this primarily took place in the first century already, then that means Jesus could come back at any moment. It could be today. And I believe he could come back today, right? This is why Jesus tells us to stay awake, be alert, be watchful. Like, I don't, I don't think as we talked about, you know, last week, I don't think a third temple has to be built and a third abomination of desolation has to happen. Like, maybe that's going to happen. But I think primarily everything Jesus here has been talking about uh, was primarily fulfilled in the first century. He could come back today. Like, I don't think there has to be more earthquakes and famines and persecution and tribulation before he comes back. There could be more of those things coming, but all those things did take place in the first century. I believe he could come back today. And if he could come back today, then there has to be a sense of urgency amongst his people for not only themselves to stay awake and be watchful, 
But as messengers sent by God, there needs to be a sense of urgency in waking up others and telling them that Jesus is king and he's coming back any day. Are you prepared to meet him? Are you prepared to meet him? Because look at the warning Jesus gives us. Look back at Mark 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Okay, up until this point, Jesus has been referring to those days, right? He's been saying things like, for in those days there will be a great tribulation. In those days the sun will be darkened and the the stars will fall from the sky. But now he switches gears. And now he's saying, uh, but concerning that day and that hour, and many, uh, many theologians believe that those days were referring to the events in the first century surrounding the destruction of the temple. But now he's switching gears because now he's talking about that day and that hour. And he's likely now referring to his second coming. He says, no one knows that day. Not even angels. Not even Jesus. But only the Father. Now, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus God? And isn't God all-knowing? You thought we were done swimming in the deep end of Mark chapter 13. We are not. It's the gift that keeps on giving, right? This is something, this is hard to understand. What do you mean, Jesus? You don't know? Jesus is God. He, he knows everything. What do you mean you don't know? And this is, this is one of the mysteries of the incarnation. And what we mean by that is God taking on flesh. When when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has eternally existed, when he came to earth and took on flesh, you see, he temporarily laid aside the free exercise of his divine attributes so that he might live like a human lives in submission to the Father and in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, that's difficult to completely understand because being fully God and fully man is something that is unique only to Jesus, right? Like, we know he is God, and yet he was also, he also got thirsty sometimes. He got hungry. He got tired. He, he could even be killed, right? The fact that he had physical needs, the fact that he needed anything, uh, shows that when the Son took on flesh, it's not that he lost his deity, it's not that he became any less God, but he did temporarily lay aside the free exercise of those divine attributes so that he could live in submission to the Father and dependence on the Spirit. So listen, we know that Jesus is king. We know he is coming back. But when? But when? Jesus says no one knows. So stop trying to make predictions. No one knows. 
For example, I came across this really good book. Let's see if it shows up for you guys. I, I tried to get a hard copy of this book, but unfortunately, I only have the PDF version. And for those who can't see it, the title of the book is 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, for whatever reason, book sales really tanked in 1989. I don't know exactly what happened, but it just didn't seem to really, you know, get much steam after 1989. And if you want the PDF version, let me know. I'll send it your way. I got through the first 20 reasons. I was not convinced. And then I felt really convicted that I was wasting my life by reading that book. But this is what people do, right? This is what we do. Every few years, there's someone coming out with something about how they read a passage in the Bible and how, how this apocalyptic text in the Bible, it's referring to Saddam Hussein and how the locusts are representative of the Apache helicopters. And if you take the number of Jewish feasts and you multiply the apostles and you divide by the 70th week of Daniel and then you add Pat Robertson's age, like then you can figure out when he's coming back, right? It doesn't work. Like, don't try to even do that. Jesus says, stop. No one knows. If the angels don't even know, I guarantee you with a calculator reading some weird blog, like, is not going to figure it out. We don't know. Jesus says, stop it. And Jesus will affirm this later with his disciples after his resurrection. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Verses 6 through 8, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. But what is for us? Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Jesus says, stop making predictions and start making disciples. He says, stay awake. I'm coming back. Go proclaim the good news. Go gather my people. He says, be watchful. Be watchful. Be as watchful as the Morgan Sea Gypsies. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Morgan, I'm getting a lot of blank stares. You guys know the Morgan Sea Gypsies. No? Okay, I'll refresh you. You guys, I'm sure you know. I'm sure you know. I'll refresh you. The Morgan Sea Gypsies are a small tribe of about 200 fishermen who spend much of the year on their boats fishing in the sea in between India and Indonesia and Thailand. Uh, but they, they usually take a month off in December, and they live in shelters on beaches in Thailand. And in December 2004, in the hours leading up to the killer tsunami that crashed ashore, the Morgan Sea Gypsies were living on those beaches. They were in harm's way, and they would have likely perished if they had not listened to the warning of their elders. Because you see, for generations, the elders of the tribe had passed along a piece of wisdom, something to be watchful for. The elders told us that if the water recedes fast, it will reappear in the same quantity in which it disappeared. That had been passed down from generation to generation, something to be watchful for. 
And so that's exactly what happened. The sea drained quickly from the beach and it left uh, stranded fish flopping on the shore. And so for those who didn't know what the warning signs to be looking for, they were like, hey, this is great. Look at all this fish. And people went out and started collecting it. But not the Morgan Sea Gypsies. When the water receded from the beach, the tribal chief who had been watching the water ordered everyone to run to the mountains and to run to a temple in the mountains to seek shelter. And when the waters crashed ashore, all the sea gypsies were safe on high ground. The Morgan sea gypsies, they were watchful of the signs, and they warned their people, and their people were saved. Church, Jesus has shown us that he is king, He has told us that he's coming back. Are we prepared to meet him? And have we warned our people so that they might be saved as well? Are our neighbors prepared to meet him? Our coworkers, our classmates, our families. Have you warned them that salvation is found only in running to and finding refuge in Jesus Christ? The most loving thing you can do when you wake up to the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ is to wake up those God has put around you. I recently recently got a, a new alarm clock because I'm not a morning person, and so I'm always looking for ways to make the waking up experience a little bit more pleasant. And so I heard about this alarm clock that doesn't wake you up with like an annoying iPhone tune, and yet it's also not like a, a, a panic-invoking, you know, alarm sound that, that goes off. But it's supposed to gently wake you up as it gradually uh, kind of mimics a sunrise. And so over the course of 30 minutes, it's this alarm that's actually just a light, and it lights up over 30 minutes, and it gradually becomes brighter and brighter so that you just kind of wake up and just float into your day, just ready to handle everything life would bring at you. Now, unfortunately, Brit is more sensitive to the light than I am. So what usually happens is the light wakes her up, and I wake up to an elbow to the chest, which is also an exhilarating way to wake up. But I, I'm not a, but I know she does that out of love. She wakes me up lovingly because my alarm has woken her up. Church, when we've been awakened to the light of the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we show this light to others that they might be awakened as well? Jesus is king. Jesus is coming back. Wake up. Are you prepared to meet him? Like, wake up, be on guard. Hard times will come. Pain will come. Life will be hard. But take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows the future of his people. And church, get this, the pain that we experience, these are birth pains. There's new life coming. The the pain that Brit experienced during labor, I think she would say it was worth it. Why? Because of those four new lives that were brought into this world. 
And just like the new life of our four boys that we enjoy, so too there is new life with Jesus, not only coming in the new heavens and new earth, but with Christ there is new life right now we get to start enjoying. Church, this life isn't the end, it is the beginning. The the pain that the disciples experienced and the pain that we will experience, it's not the end times. It's the beginning of times. And I love the way C.S. Lewis wraps up the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's how we'll wrap up this sermon this morning as well. And he writes, And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. And as I was reading that, I really feel the Lord brought to mind our brother James, who recently passed away. Listen, church, we did not experience the last chapter in James's life. No. We experienced the first chapter of his real life. Jesus is king. Jesus is coming back. Wake up, church. He's maybe coming today. Are you prepared to meet him? Have you received the salvation and the grace that he offers to you? Are you showing the light to those around you that they might be awakened as well? These pains and these trials and these tribulations we experience in life, these are not the end times. They are the beginning of times. This is chapter one of the story of Jesus' kingdom that will go on forever, and every chapter will be better than the one before. Amen? Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we do anticipate the day when Jesus, you will return. Lord, help us be watchful. Help us be ready. Help us as your messengers go share the good news with our friends and our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. Lord, we long for the day when you will make all things right and all things new. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.